At the end of a long day at a newspaper where I was the editor, writes Lee Strobel, I was packing up to leave when I felt the unmistakable gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit. I sensed God leading me to go into the business office and invite my atheist friend to church, to an Easter service. The impression was so strong, I figured something dramatic was about to happen. I walked into the office. The place appeared empty, except for my friend who was sitting at his desk alone. Perfect, I thought. I reminded him that Easter was coming, and I asked if he would like to come to church with Leslie and I. He turned me down cold. I asked if he was interested in spiritual matters, and he emphatically said, no. I asked if he had any questions about God. No. I explained why the resurrection was so important, but he wasn't interested. With all my evangelistic overtures being rebuffed, I began to feel embarrassed. If God had really prompted me to talk with him, then why was he so uninterested? Finally, I stammered as I backed out of the office, but well, uh, if you ever have any questions, um, uh, you know where my desk is. Skip ahead a few years. By this time, I was a teaching pastor in suburban Chicago. After service, a middle-aged man walked up and shook my hand and said, I just want to thank you for your spiritual influence, the influence you've had on my life. That's very nice, I said. But who are you? He said, well, let me tell you my story. A few years ago, I lost my job. I didn't have any money, and I was afraid I was going to lose my home as well. So I called a friend of mine down at the newspaper and asked if he had any work available. He informed me that he had some floors that needed tiling, and I had tiled my bathroom once, and so I agreed. So one day, shortly before Easter, I was on my hands and knees behind a desk in the business office of the newspaper fixing some tiles when you walked into the room. I don't even think you saw me. You started talking about Jesus and God and Easter to some guy that wasn't interested at all. But I was crouching there listening. My heart was beating fast and I started thinking, I need God. I need to go to church. And so that week, my wife, my son, and I went to Easter service at your church. And all of us came to faith in Christ. I just wanted to thank you. You never know what God might do when you speak about Jesus. You never know who might be listening when you sing about Jesus. You never know whose heart God might want to open through your witness. We're in Acts chapter 16 this morning. We're going to cover verses 15 through 40. And the main idea, what I want you to walk away thinking about, is that God opens hearts. Last week we saw that God directs our steps. He ordains our relationships. And this week I want you to see that he opens hearts. And the exhortation is simple. Speak and sing about Jesus. Let's pray and we'll get into the text this morning together. Father, 
there are a million places we could be this morning. A million different things that we could be devoting ourselves to. Whether it's watching the early tea of the masters, or preparing for an afternoon full of basketball, or, or maybe just sleeping in on a Sunday. We, we have gotten up in obedience to you, and we have gathered here for worship. And we come not only because we want to obey you and love you well, but because we expect to hear from you. We expect to meet you in this time, in this place. We expect to encourage one another and to be encouraged. And so we come panting like deer, thirsty for a drink of that living water, hands open, ready to receive from you. And so we ask that you would speak. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me at verse 16. Uh, actually, I got, we're in Acts. We've made it all the way up to Acts chapter 16, and we've summarized the book of Acts this way by saying, in Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And that's just what we've seen happen. Jesus ascends to his throne from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit onto his church. And his church, in obedience to his word, has gone out and witnessed not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and is spreading to the very ends of the earth. And God is bringing people in. He's growing his church. Jesus is building his church. It's wonderful. It's exciting. The word is prevailing in the face of adversity and trouble over and over again. And last week we saw Paul and Silas, and they added Timothy to their team, uh, attempt to take the gospel into some regions where it had not yet come. But God moved them so that their feet would come to this place and to this village. He directed their path to Philippi, an important Roman city. And it's here that we meet Lydia. So now, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day, Neapolis, then from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thatira, was listening. Now, just real quick, Lydia being identified as a seller of purple cloth is uh, Luke's way of telling us she is a wealthy woman, right? She's not Jewish, but she's sympathetic to the Jews, and so she's meeting with these women in this place of prayer. It doesn't seem like there were a lot of Jews at Philippi. A place of prayer could be an idiom for a synagogue, but in all likelihood, they don't have enough uh, Jews there to have even a synagogue, and so it's just kind of a prayer group that gets together for worship. And here, Paul and Silas will begin sharing with her. She's listening to them. And so you can think of Lydia, an upper class kind of um, Jewish woman. And she is a dealer in really fine products. Purple was a sign of royalty. And so it's almost, you can think of it like she owned like a, a Gucci or a Prada shop, right? And she's doing okay for herself. She's got a big house we'll figure out later on. But she's there, she's a God-fearing woman, and she's listening to what's being said. 
She's listening. Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so Lydia sitting there with all these women in this prayer group, here's Paul and Silas and Timothy sharing the gospel. And God opens her heart. She believes and she does what Christians do when they come to believe in Jesus. She is baptized. And together with her household, not only is she baptized, not only is she going to share her home, but she shared her faith so that those in her house too could come to know Jesus. This is a pattern we see emerge again later in the chapter uh, with the jailer. I'm going to flip ahead just for a moment to verse 30. The jailer asks Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. And so we can see that these two accounts, and we'll see more, that they're meant to mirror each other in a lot of ways. And they're teaching us that the requirements for an upper-class woman in Philippi and a blue-collar guy in Philippi to come to Christ are precisely the same. All they need is faith in Jesus. They're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They hear the message, God opens their heart, they respond with faith, and they are, together with those who believe in their homes, baptized. Baptism is a, a symbol that we have been forgiven of our sins, raised to new life with Christ, and joined to his church. It's the way converts put skin on their confession of faith. It's a beautiful thing. Lydia comes to faith. Friends, if you have not been baptized and you are a believer, you need to be. This is an act of obedience. Lydia also is just such a wonderful, godly example just from the start. She has her heart open, she responds with faith, shares with her family, is baptized, and then asks these apostles to come and stay in her house, right? She gives them like an offer they can't refuse. If you consider me to be a believer, and you do, you've baptized me, then you have to come and stay at my house. That place you're at, it's not good enough. Food's not great. Food at my place is better. I've got better rooms. You are staying with me. You're one of those really strongly persuasive people, right? You're like, no, I, I, don't, really, I don't want anything to drink. And they're like bringing you water and tea anyway. And I know I won't have any of those cookies are showing up. And so they, they give in to her hospitality and say, okay, we're, we're going to stay with you. This all comes about because Paul and Silas are simply speaking about Jesus. Friends, we want to speak and share the good news that Jesus has been crucified for sin has been resurrected to free us from death and is returning to make all things new. We, we want to share that good news as often as we can with as many people as we can. Because God opens hearts. And you never know what he might do if you simply resolve to speak about Jesus. 
He opens Lydia's heart. She's a pretty good person, but she's not too good to not need Jesus. There's no such thing. Nobody's too good for Jesus, and nobody's too far gone. Not even a demon-possessed slave girl. We meet her in verse 16. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out right away. And so we have a fortune teller here who has a demonic or an evil spirit by which she's able to predict the future. So this is not like your contemporary um, psychic where they're like, all right, uh, I'm getting the sense that someone in the room, uh, I'm getting the letter J and the, um, the letter S. I, I sense someone in the room is having relational troubles with somebody who has an S or a J in their name. Is that, is that you? Right, that's not what she's doing. James apparently is having some trouble. <laughs> that's not what she's doing. She's, she's accurately predicting the future by way of a demonic spirit. Listen, there are evil spirits in our world and sometimes they tell us truths that can be dangerous and a little twisted. And so she's following Paul and Silas around and she's just making this great pronouncement. Hey, they're declaring to you the way of salvation. They're servants of the Most High God. And Paul gets really annoyed and casts the demon out, right? So the question is, well, why, why now? Why does he need to, to cast the demon out now? Why did it take many days? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. But it's important that he does cast the demon out because two things are happening here. She is creating ambiguity around the gospel, some confusion, and an association between herself and Paul and Silas. And so in a society that has a great plurality of gods, where Paul and Silas are attempting to teach people that they need to forsake their old gods and follow Jesus, the one true living God, for her to be following them around as kind of a herald is a bad look. Also, when she calls them servants of the Most High God in a pluralistic society, uh, particularly this one in a Roman city, that's going to conjure up thoughts about Zeus, right? Going to not be exactly clear which God they're serving. And once more, it's going to create a tacit association between her and the apostles, between their message and her actions, between the occult and the gospel. And so Paul, when he turns and casts this demon out, is making plain, my God is the real God. He has power over these false gods, and our messages are not alike. At once, when he says, come out of her, the demon comes out. And this girl is freed. And I am 
making a presupposition here. The text doesn't tell us what becomes of the girl. But it's my contention that she experienced the same thing that the Gerasene demoniac did. Y'all remember that story? The crazy guy's like cutting himself. And Jesus like, all right, send, get out of him, demons. The demons are like, you're Jesus, we're afraid. Send, like, don't send us into the abyss. And Jesus says, go into the pigs. And the whole herd of pigs goes and drowns itself. And then the people in that place are like, you've really upset the economy and so you have to go, right? But at once, that, that, the, the man who was being afflicted is in his right mind and he has faith in Jesus. And I, I, think, I, I just believe that that's what happens to this girl here. That no one is too far gone for the reach of Jesus. And that he saved her all at once. That he made her well. At a minimum, she's healed from her demonic oppression. And yet what we'll see is not everybody is super pumped about that. That a lot like with the healing of the Gerasene demoniac, there is a focus not on the person or their value, not on the truth of the message that's, that's being brought. There's a big concern with money, with the bottom line. Money is a pretty significant idol in our culture and perhaps even in your life. It's always worth asking the question, am I serving my money Am I using my money for God's glory or is money using me? And for these businessmen, they are serving their money. That's made quite plain here in verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews. And are promoting customs that are not legal for us Romans to adopt and practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them. And the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they threw them into jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. And so they are beaten with rods, cracked ribs perhaps, bleeding for sure, unjustly imprisoned, put in the inner prison. And they have their feet put in stocks which were designed to contort the body in unnatural ways and cause pain. They are suffering. Christianity comes with a cost. Following Jesus, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, he means it. He didn't just mean it for Paul and Silas. He meant it for us. I mean, our our suffering in our country is really minimal. Like, typically it amounts to being insulted, shamed. But but this kind of, of physical persecution and oppression is not relegated to antiquity. 
It's a contemporary thing. It still happens. It's happening right now. There's someone being persecuted right now for believing in Jesus in our world. You need look no further than the recent crackdown on Christianity in China. I don't know if you've read stories of an early rain church in Chengdu. My family and I have been to Chengdu. The pastor arrested and put in prison. Congregational members arrested. Grandparents, children, parents put in prison. Their church raided. And reason for the arrests? Inciting subversion of state power. Illegal business operation. And provoking disturbances. Sounds really similar to our text. For good reason, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Indeed, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are signing ourselves over to the possibility of being persecuted for that faith. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Do you really believe in Him? I hope so because He's worth it. He's worth every ounce of suffering in this world. He's worth every tear you will shed. The reward in heaven is exponentially greater than anything you'll suffer here. There's a weight of glory for the faithful that will far outweigh all of this. Redeem it even. We follow Jesus willing to suffer because we know that he suffered for us. Christianity is a bloody religion. We worship a Savior who became flesh and blood so that he might become killable, so that he might die and suffer hell on the cross so that we don't have to suffer hell in eternity. He shed his blood so that we might be washed in it. Cleansed, made new. Jesus bids us to eat of his flesh and to drink of his blood as a proclamation of the gospel, as a remembrance of what he did at Calvary, and a prognostication, a, a prophetic teaching of what is to come. That he will return, not to spill his blood but to spill the blood of those who are in rebellion against Him. Not to drink the cup of God's wrath, but to drink the fruit of the vine in celebration that God has ended evil without ending His people. Jesus is worth suffering for. I hope that you have counted the cost. He's worthy is worthy of being thrown into stocks and being beaten with rods. We're willing to suffer 
at least we should be, because we believe in the real and risen Savior. I hope that you really believe this. Non-Christian, I bid you, I implore you to believe this. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to pray that God might open your heart as he did Lydia's and as he does the Philippian jailers. Let's look, with, let's look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I love this verse. I love it. Because who does that? Right? If you're writing a Hollywood play, you're like, this is a little too much. Nobody is this happy all the time. Nobody has joy in singing and praying while they have blood matted in their hair and stuck to their foreheads. After having just been beaten, like, who does this? And the answer is Christians. Christians do this because we have an unassailable joy, an inheritance that is kept in heaven, unfading and imperishable. Because our delight comes not from our circumstances, but from Jesus. Christians are singing. We're a singing people. That's weird even among world religions. We sing because our God is worthy. We sing because we're cheerfully defiant. When the world and circumstances around us tell us that we should be melancholy and depressed and have no hope, we say, no, my hope is in Christ who is risen, not in this world. And so we, with cheerful defiance, sing. We sing to remember the joy that Christ has given, to be reminded of these great theological truths that have shaped us, Remember all those songs you sang when you were a kid? You remember them. Right? A, B, C, D. Mary had a little lamb. Right? You, you know it right away. Likewise, we want to be a people that sings and learns these songs. I mean, can, you, can you imagine what it was like? They're in stocks. They've been beaten. They're bloodied. They get drawn into the prison to the, the inner place where it's dark. All of a sudden, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And the other prisoners are going, what? What do you mean it's well with your soul? Who has taught you? to be content in this circumstance? And their answer, Christ! Jesus is all. He has taught us joy. And He is the reason we sing. Brothers and sisters, let us resolve to be a singing people. To sing well songs that have been passed down to us from Christians before us to sing well songs that have been written anew, all to the glory of our Father, that we might be uh, 
have our emotions stirred up in the joy that suits saints, that we might be reminded of these wonderful truths. Heaven forbid that one day we or you would end up imprisoned and you wouldn't have any songs to sing. It's, it's our intention as a church to learn Christian songs so that we might sing them. And you never know who's listening when you sing. You never know what God might do. In this instance, the prisoners are listening to them. Paul and Silas don't know that they're going to be delivered. Maybe they think that this is their, their James moment. Remember back in, uh, I think it was chapter 12, James, Herod kills him. No deliverance comes for him. I mean, Jesus always delivers eventually, whether through death or through temporary circumstance, maybe a jailbreak like he did Peter. Deliverance eventually comes. They don't know that it's coming this time or in this particular way. They're singing and God does something. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now you might ask, why, why is the jailer going to kill himself? And this is kind of standard practice. If you lost prisoners, you were held accountable, and the punishment was death. And they're in an honor-shame society, and so lots of times what would happen is if you lost the prisoner or prisoners, you, would just, you were an honorable person, you would just kill yourself. And so because the doors have been opened, the chains have been loosed, this earthquake has happened, the jailer assumes everybody has gotten out of Dodge. He assumes all the prisoners, all the captives have gone free. And so he is going to, being an honorable man, end his life. But all at once, his execution is stayed by a word from Paul. Don't harm yourself, because we're all here. Not just Paul, not just Silas, all the prisoners. Pretty miraculous. Why do you think the prisoners stayed where they were? Why do you think Paul and Silas stayed where they were? I think it's for the jailer's benefit in terms of Paul and Silas. And I think the prisoners stay because they recognize God is doing something here. I think that perhaps even some of them came to know the Lord. All because Paul and Silas were singing and praying. Paul stays his execution. And the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so he at least is a little familiar with the contours of their message and their mission to ask this wonderful question. It's a question that all of us have asked at some point if we're Christians. It's a question, if you're not a Christian, that you need to ask You need to recognize that you need to be saved. So often people today, oh, I'm spiritual, not religious. Really, I'm a good person. And they don't 
don't think they need to be saved. Friend, you do. You are in rebellion against a holy God who made you. He created you. And you have spat in his face and said, I'm going to do this my way, not your way. So get out of my way. You are in rebellion against him. And he is all-powerful. He can rightly bring judgment on you right now. He can rightly carry that sentence out through eternity, which he intends to do. It's right and good. That's the punishment that you and I deserve. He hasn't done that. He's been patient that his kindness might lead you to repentance, that you might see instead of just killing all of humanity, putting us in hell, instead of doing that, he gave us what we don't deserve, grace, what we don't deserve. He gave us the opposite of what we deserve. And God the Son took on flesh and lived the life we were supposed to live died a death that we should have died and rose from the dead. He came to forgive sins and free us from death. All you have to do to be saved is to believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. I do love that the jailer comes and he's just like, there was an earthquake and and everybody's chains are off. All the doors are open. Why are you still here? It's clearly because this message of salvation that you're proclaiming is real. I wonder if you live your life in such a way that when people look at it or interact with you, they go, you know what, this person, they live their life in such a way that this message is real. This this message is true to them. He says, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them in the same hour of that night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. He follows that same pattern. God opens his heart. He responds with faith. He shares with his family. And they are baptized. Same pattern with Lydia. These things mark Christians. Faith, sharing, baptism. And then you might have missed this other mark of a Christian that comes right away. Hospitality. Hospitality. Right away, Lydia invites them into her home. Right away, this man takes them to his house. He washes their wounds. They baptize him. He invites them in. They come. He sets food before him, before them. They eat it. There's a celebration in his home revolving around Christ. Friends, hospitality seems to be rarer and rarer. But it is not an option for the Christian. We are to be a people who welcome one another and others into our homes. This is a mark of what it means to be Christian. Be somebody who is welcoming, who stewards their resources for the benefit of others. Because I don't know what it looks like for you. You know, maybe it is, hey, you know, Friday night's going to be a night where we have somebody from the community or from our church over for dinner. 
We're just going to build relationship there because we know God uses hospitality. This is one of the main ways he spreads the gospel. It's where he builds relationships. This is where great conversations happen is around the dinner table. Maybe if you're a single person and you're like, you know what, I don't really cook all that often. What you can do, and I'm giving you license to do this, single people, invite yourself over to someone else's house here. I can't speak for those in the community, but if there's a member of this church, you find them and say, I want to come to your house for dinner sometime in the next two, three weeks. Let's make it happen. I want to practice hospitality, but I'm going to practice it in your house. That's okay. Invite yourself over. You, you can do it. I want you to do it. We want to build relationships with one another. We want to care for one another. We want to show the love of Christ to one another and to those in our community. Hospitality is so important. And it, it often involves homes, but it doesn't require them. Right? Hospitality isn't primarily about location, but about a loving and generous allocation of our time and our resources. It's investing in others. Hospitality is not about location, but allocation. It's about giving ourselves to others, welcoming them, cultivating relationship with them. Food just makes that way easier. It's a question we need to ask. Do you view your home as primarily yours or God's? Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which I quite enjoyed. But in it, she says, asks this just really penetrating question. She said, did you ever consider that your home might be God's ordained way of escape for someone? And what she meant was that your home can kind of serve as, as a hospital for hurting people that they can come in and, and feel a part. Right? Hospitality is not about entertainment. That's, that's Martha Stewart. Right? It's about engaging. It's about relationship. It's about sharing. And so like, it's okay if, if you have somebody over to your house and you, they come in, they're coming to see you, that right away you say, hey, we actually have some dishes. Do you want to help with that? And I got some laundry over here that we're folding and working through. Invite them into your real life, into your mess. That's what we're after. We're going to share that. Allow them to help with the meal preparation. Build relationship with one another. Utilize the resources God has given you to serve each other and to serve our community and watch the gospel grow. We also want to, we want to do this corporately, right? We want to make sure we use this main hall and the rest of our facilities to the glory of God, to welcome others, to let them know the love of Jesus, right? This is why we open our doors to so many random groups and people. We want this to be a place where life happens, a place that the community can look towards and go, you know what, I don't agree with Christianity, but you know what, their, their doors have been open to us. My kid had a birthday party there. It was great. We want to be a hospitable people. God opens the heart of Lydia, sets free a fortune-telling girl, opens the heart of the jailer, and he establishes the Philippian church. Paul and Silas are not out of prison yet, though. The next day, the chief magistrate is going to 
send for their release. There's just one little wrinkle. Look at verse 35. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, Release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released. So come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They beat us in public without a trial. Although we are Roman citizens and threw us in jail, and now they're going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come out themselves and escort us. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them and escorted them from prison. They urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. And so the, the magistrate decides they're going to release Paul and Silas. We're not told why. Perhaps this earthquake uh, scares them and they're like, Some, we've done something wrong. We've got to get rid of these guys. Perhaps they're just a nuisance and they want them to move on. But either way, at the end of the day, they decide they need to be released. The problem is Paul is not going to go quietly. He and Silas are Roman citizens and that meant something at this particular point in history. It meant that you could not be shamefully treated like they were that you could not be unjustly condemned and thrown into prison and beaten without a fair trial. And to circumvent these rights, as the magistrate did, to not honor these rights was looked at as an affront against Rome itself. And so the reason they become afraid is they're like, oh no, we have really messed this up. We, we could lose our jobs, maybe more. And so they're afraid. Paul is, is he's a smart guy. So two things happen. They don't bust their Roman citizenship out right away when they are being persecuted. What they do is they endure the hardship. And I think, I think this is, maybe they couldn't get it out, that's possible. But many, most of the commentators agree that the reason they do this is to show solidarity with the church in Philippi. That they're not going to take an easy way out. That they are indeed willing to suffer for this gospel. Could be, I don't know. But certainly the reason that Paul brings his Roman citizenship to the attention of the magistrates now is so that they will think twice before they persecute the Philippian church. These could be Roman citizens. We probably shouldn't imprison them right away. He's doing this to protect the Philippian church and to vindicate his message. They were publicly condemned and thrown in prison, and now he wants to make sure they are publicly vindicated. That indeed the gospel was not anti-Rome. That indeed they had done nothing wrong and were innocent. This is just a really wise move on his part to help ensure the safety and the strength of the brothers and sisters left behind in Philippi. And you do see that at the end, right? Verse 40, after leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters. They came to Lydia's house where the church was meeting. That's what that says. The church is there. Their mission has been accomplished. God took them into Macedonia so that the Philippian church might be planted. I don't know who's among the brothers and sisters there. Maybe some of the prisoners. Maybe the slave girl. Certainly Lydia. Perhaps this jailer and his family. But God has put a church in this Roman city. 
Paul and Silas have spoken about Jesus and God has done something incredible. God has opened hearts. I think often we look at the miracle of open hearts and of conversion as not all that miraculous. Like we read our Bibles and we go, oh, an, an earthquake, angels, and demons being driven out. And those are, are miraculous. But we miss what's right in front of us. The ordinary and, I would argue, more miraculous work of conversion. Of God making dead people, spiritually dead, dead people come to life. It is miraculous. We want to speak about Jesus, sing about Jesus, tell others about Jesus, because God still does this miracle. He still brings the dead to life. He still opens hearts. He still saves. Jesus is still risen. He's still working. He's still ruling and reigning. And he still commands our obedience to make disciples. And so we need to speak and sing about Jesus. Because you never know what God might do when you speak of Jesus. You never know who might be listening when you are singing about Jesus. You don't know whose heart God may intend to open through your witness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have drawn us together as members in your family and specifically together here as members of a local church. Pray that you would be with us, that you would make us a people who have hearts full of hospitality. You give us a Christ-like attitude. You would make us willing to suffer as we follow Jesus. Not that we would seek suffering out, but that we would stand ready to die on the cross we carry in obedience to Jesus. Remind us, Lord, that there is nothing better than knowing Christ, living for Him, and delighting in Him. Help us to teach this to our friends, our family, our children, our neighbors. Let's be a people that speak and sing about Jesus. This we pray in His name. Amen.